0: Let's open our Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. For those that are listening to this sermon later, we have had read to us already this morning Psalm 15 in its entirety, Psalm 24 verses 1 through 6, and Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 27. Those three passages cross references to Second Peter 1, 5 through 11 in that they give a description of the truly saved, of the truly righteous, of the children of God, of the citizens of Zion. Second Peter chapter 1, I read to you verses 5 through 11. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. These are the words of the living God. This is divine revelation from heaven. And whether a person maintains the doctrine of election or not, it is taught in the Bible. This is one of those places that you can take others to show them that election is taught in the Bible. Some, when they first hear about election, ask the foolish question. Many times it's scornfully asked, how can I know I'm one of God's elect? If you think the Bible teaches election, then how can I know if I'm one of God's elect? Well, God plainly, clearly laid out exactly how you can know that you're one of God's elect. In your preparation last evening, you read the shortest passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And here in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, both of them give us a list of things that show whether we are God's elect or not, because those that are not God's elect cannot do these things, and those that are God's elect have the power to do them. The divine power from verse 3 of this same chapter gives us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, so we can do these eight things. The Apostle Peter began his two epistles in the first chapter of the first epistle, in the second verse, by describing the election of those to whom he wrote. And so he's already identified them as elect, and since Paul had been their primary teacher anyway, and Paul teaches things like Romans chapter 8 and 9 and 11 and Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy 1 and Titus 1, all of which describe election. These people were established in the doctrine of election. But Peter here is going to tell them that not only has God provided great measures for your spiritual success and victorious living in the first four verses, but you need to apply yourselves You need to show all diligence in order to make your calling and your election sure. The words, and beside this, opening up verse 5, they mean in addition to what has been said. In addition to that illustrious sentence that covers four verses, let me move on and make some additional points, is what the Apostle Peter is writing us. That first sentence that covers the first four verses was a salutation and blessings and it is very full. I was very tempted to re-preach it this morning and who knows I may re-preach it next Sunday morning because those first four verses are very powerful and weighty to us and I want you to understand them in their practical sense, not a legal or vital sense. When it refers to partakers of the divine nature, that is something that you do. It is not something done for you. In other places, it is something done for you. But here it is something you put on because it is based on knowing the exceeding great and precious promises. But we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to move on to verses 5 through 11. That first sentence formed a crescendo of doctrine and duty, rising to a glorious climax of grace, whereby we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We've become partakers of the divine nature. We have the power to do, and we may do, all things that pertain into life and godliness. It's a wonderful passage. But let's go to verses 5 through 11. And beside this, giving all diligence. The matter, the subject that is in front of us, deserves all diligence. And this subject is whether you are God's elect or not. Whether God chose to save you or not. Whether God chose you in Christ Jesus before the world began or not. Whether God chose to write your name in the book of life before the world began or not. That is the matter of the passage. And the Apostle does not start out with the matter and then give us the criteria. He starts out with the criteria then explains the matter to which it applies. Giving all diligence. This matter, as has been stated in this pulpit already this morning, The question and the answer, am I one of the Lord's? Am I one of God's elect? Am I a child of His as my name in the book of life should be at the top of our minds. It's a matter of great importance to which we should give all diligence. Get the point of these words down soundly. There is something for you to do. I am sick of having heard so much Arminian drivel and twaddle all my life, that there is sinner, there is nothing you can do. Well, then you're lying. Because Peter said, if ye do these things. Psalm 15 said, he that doeth these things. Jesus said in Matthew 7, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven... They are the ones that go to heaven. That is the general rule of the Word of God. I know the exceptions better than you know them, and I'm referring to everyone listening to this and everyone sitting here. But the exceptions do not make the rule. The exceptions prove the rule, and the rule is the righteous go to heaven. The workers of iniquity don't make the cut. I am sick of all that stuff that I have heard. Because all they want to do is elicit a little emotional, superficial decision about Jesus out of people and then ascribe to them eternal life and tell them that salvation is guaranteed. Some say, sinner, there is nothing you must do. But there are things you must do. And you should give all diligence to those things. Some say, sinner, just accept God's free gift. But diligence is demanded here. Twice. The word diligence is in verse 5. The word diligence is in verse 10. And it's if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. It doesn't say if you accepted Jesus, you'll never fall. Nowhere does it say that in the Bible. It's if God accepted you in Jesus. And that's the doctrine of election and calling to which we want to prove ourselves. Some say, sinner, just accept God's free gift. But you're the one that has to give in this passage... Giving all diligence. The gift of God that is eternal life was given to us before the world began. It was given to us 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. It was given to us in time when we were born again. But here it is giving all diligence yourself toward God in good works of righteousness. Some say, since you accepted Jesus, all is sure as can be. But that is not true here. Because here you need to make your calling and election sure because it isn't sure yet as far as you're concerned. It's sure as far as God is concerned because Jesus Christ is the surety of the new covenant. He's the guarantor, mediator, intercessor, perpetual high priest that guarantees that He will not lose a single one of them. But that is in heaven, here on earth, your final destiny is not yet made sure until you do these things and abound in them, is what the passage teaches us. The passage is so very simple. There's no difficulty today learning this passage. It's just, will we humble ourselves before it and put it into practice? Will you remember the passage for the next time you're dealing with someone that wants to bark against the doctrine of election and ask them, what does 2 Peter 1, 5 through 5-11 mean? What is it talking about never falling? What does it talk about election? What does it talk about an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior? Some say, if you add anything to accepting Jesus as your Savior, then it is legalism. And those people are not saved. Well, let me tell you something. There's a whole bigger controversy than whether you need to invite Jesus into your heart as Savior or Lord. For those of you that do not even understand what I'm saying, I'm sorry for that. But you, they have watered down, the Arminian scheme of salvation has watered down what you need to say to get saved to where they're having a controversy about whether you should invite the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart or just Jesus your Savior into your heart. And those that, and the majority believe that it's just Jesus, your Savior, into your heart, because if you add the word Lord, you've added legalism to it, and those people will not be saved. They invited the wrong one into their heart, because they've added works to the finished work of Christ. That is how they reason. And that is entirely absurd and ridiculous. Right. The entire argument. Because the Word of God is not the words that you spoke, but what have you done? as you just heard from that reading of Matthew 7, 13-27 by Brother Chris. He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is building his house upon a rock. And that house, brethren, is not your life in this world. That house is your life in the great day of judgment because that entire passage is the great day of judgment that is coming. Lord, help us. They're so mixed up and confused. There has been such a watering down of doctrine We sound entirely crazy compared to them. But listen, brethren, we have the Word of God behind us. They find one little verse like Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But they don't ever tell you about Luke 6.46, Why do ye call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Or this passage in Matthew 7 that says many call, but they don't make it. Some say Romans 10.13 is all you need to know. But here it's all diligence and there's nothing about calling except God's calling of you proven by your good works. It's not your calling on Him. Some say, do you know when you were saved? But here there is no such date. Because the date is established by the word election. The date was before the foundation of the world. And we want to know that that date applies to us. It's not some date that you did something with your lips, something with your emotions. It's your life. Your lifelong conforming to Jesus Christ is the evidence of election and eternal life. Do not let any man deceive you. Do not let the devil deceive you. Do not let your heart deceive you. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter that once in a while you've got excited about a sermon because the Bible tells us that all kinds of ground spring up with joy, but they do not bear fruit. And this passage says if they don't bear fruit... In the best case, they are belly worshippers. In the worst case, and the general rule, they are reprobates. The matter is so crucial that the word diligence is used. Very easily, very easily, let me define this word for you this way. Focused, hard work with perseverance to finish on time and to do the job right. Diligence. Focused hard work with perseverance to finish on time and to do the job right. We could turn to passages showing the use of the word diligence, but I believe that you understand that word and you do not need help with it. It says, Beside this, beside what was given in that first sentence opening the epistle, giving all diligence, and now he tells you what you should apply that diligence toward. And that diligence is to be applied toward seven things in particular that are added to something that God gave you. What God gave you was the foundation of faith by your regeneration. And that faith was described in the first verse of this chapter where it says that we have obtained like precious faith with us, meaning we have the faith along with the apostles of believing on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have been given that. Add to your faith virtue. But I don't want to leave this quite so quickly because we want to think about what real faith is in the Bible. But before we do that, eternal life, eternal life is God's gift to his elect. So it is of great importance that you prove to yourself that you are an elect person. If anyone ever asks you, how can I know that I'm one of God's elect? You should know about this passage. You should know these seven verses, and you should understand them and be able to explain them, and I hope in a few minutes you'll be able to do so. I would like you to turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1 and see what it says there that you read last evening, because it is the other place. It depends if you want the three-verse approach or the seven-verse approach as to which one you go to, but you need to know them both. And if you mark your margins, you should write beside 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4, and you should mark the margin beside 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4 with 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. Not even Calvinists can figure out 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4, and please pray that I will not get distracted and start preaching against Calvinism from this text, but they make me sick. Calvinists know so little of the grace of God. And the grace that they do know is a fatalistic grace that is guaranteed and is going to force you to be holy. So there is no diligence to apply because God's going to do it. It's going to be His diligence. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. They don't even understand these verses here. If you were to ask a Calvinist that has read enough commentary so that he knows what Calvinists are supposed to believe, and you were to say, how did these Thessalonians know that they were God's elect? He would quote you verse 5. He would tell you that verse 5 tells you how you know you're one of God's elect. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And they would say, that is effectual calling, and that proves whether a person is elect or not. But that is not the case. The proof of election is in verse 3. Because in verse 3, which is part of the sentence that ends at verse 4, it lists three things. The work of faith, the labor of love and the patience of hope, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, period. Right. Then, verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And that isn't describing how they received it. That is describing how the apostles delivered it. It doesn't have a thing to do with the Thessalonians. Verse 5 For our gospel came not unto you in word only, it wasn't just the apostles babbling, but also in power, the authority and power that was upon the apostles that they had been given in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. Everything they did, everything they said, everything they showed, assured that their message was from God. And it goes on to say in verse 5, As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, I want you to understand that verse 5 is talking about the way that the gospel was delivered, not how the gospel was received. How the gospel was received is verses 2 through 4. And then verses 6 to the end of the chapters. Verse 6, and ye became followers of us. Oh, for those of you that haven't read commentaries, you can't even appreciate what I just laid out before you. But for those of you that have, it's, it just makes me sick. I get so tired. Of reading Calvinists. Give me an Arminian that loves the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes. You say that's another Jesus, yes, but so is the Calvinist Jesus. Right. That Calvinist Jesus is such a fatalistic, dominating creature that he forces godliness and he forces perseverance out of his elect, and that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. If ye shall do these things, that you know you can receive the grace of God in vain, as we had prayed in this pulpit already. And as you should know from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, the grace of God can be received in vain. The grace of God does not guarantee our perseverance. Enough about all that. Forgive me. You didn't pray enough for me regarding that matter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering, this is what was notable about the Thessalonians to an apostle's eyesight with a discerning spirit, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. How did Paul know the election of the Thessalonian church and the majority of the members in it? By their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. It is such a simple, wonderful little description. Work of faith. Faith that works. Faith that changes your lives. Faith that does things. Faith that costs you. Faith that will leave relationships. Faith that will leave jobs. Faith that will will endure shame faith that will take on the persecution of this world and not wilt faith that works faith without works is dead James 2:14 through 26 tells us repeatedly this is the work of faith so this is faith that does things this is faith that results in a changed life that's the evidence of election the labor of love it's not saying i love the brethren it's not singing the dear old about the dear old church from some Spiritual song or unspiritual song. It is talking about laboring in love for God's people. Right. It's a love that costs you. It's a love that's selfless. It's a love that's giving. It's a love that's hospitable. It's a love that's entertaining. It's a love that makes efforts. It's a love that chases people down. It's a love that goes after them. It's not a love that waits for them to come to you. It's the labor of love. It's sacrificial. Oh, if you look at these three little combination phrases, they're powerful, they're weighty. They are the evidence of eternal life. They're the evidence of election, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. You have so much hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have such an expectation on being in heaven that nothing in this world can distract you or bother you. You cheerfully endure negative events, which is what patience means, because of your great hope of eternal glory. It changes your life. These Thessalonians were severely persecuted. It tells us that in both epistles, and it tells us that in Acts chapter 17, where we read about Paul visiting this city. These people were persecuted, but that persecution did not move them because of their great hope in Christ. So they were patient. They cheerfully endured the negative events that came in their lives. If you shake and tremble and if you get moved and if you get worried and if things alarm you and you get all distraught about your life because some negative events happen, what is your problem? Nothing has changed that matters. God hasn't changed. The son of God sitting at his right hand hasn't changed. The word of God hasn't changed. The sun's gonna come up tomorrow. The moon's gonna rise tonight. Nothing has changed. We're in prison. Nothing has changed. We're martyred. Nothing has changed. Except we get to be with the Lord. Forgive me for leaving out the good things that are happening. You know, the negative events that happen in your life are brought for a purpose for your perfection, so should we bring in the positive aspects of those things? But we're talking about the negative here. i got to leave this passage, and we got to get back to 2 Peter 1. But I want you to know there's two passages of Scripture that you should know well, and you should be able to share with others. First of all, to show them that there is election in the Bible. Second of all, how they can know that they're one of God's elect. Right. I love the Word of God and the truth that He has shown us. Amen. Do you understand that in the 2,000-year history of the so-called Christian church, there are, is an, a, di- there's a ditch called Arminianism or Pelagianism or Semi-Pelagianism, and there is a ditch called Amen. Augustinianism or Calvinism. Those two ditches, we go down the center of the road between them, and we don't go into either one. Amen. They accuse each other of being, being either fatalists or humanists because they cannot reconcile the responsibility of man with the sovereignty of God, and the Lord's shown us how to do both. Amen. Is God sovereign in our salvation? Oh, yes. Absolutely. He chose us in Christ before the world began. Does that mean that we can live any way we want to? No way. Not a chance. But all the things that the New Testament tells us that we ought to be doing, are they conditions for eternal life? Are they instruments for eternal life? Are they the means of eternal life? No, no, and no. They are the evidences and proofs and assurances of eternal life. We maximize the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Do you understand that? Amen. And they can't because they're in both ditches. It is by the grace of God. Right. It is a shame when we can't be as thankful as we could be or should be because you haven't read widely enough to know about those two ditches and how deep they are and that wars have been fought in Europe over those ditches. Mm -hmm. And we go down the center of the road. Salvation is of the Lord and we absolutely and fully believe it. In four phases there is no involvement by us whatsoever. It is all of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. But in the practical phase of salvation where God's grace is bestowed upon us and His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we, we are to put off the old man. We are to put on the new man. We are to grow in grace. We are to give all diligence to these eight things. And so there we have the greatest responsibility that without, righteous, without a righteous life, without a godly life, we have no evidence of eternal life. That is an enormous, That is an enormous emphasis on the responsibility of man to live a holy life in the sight of God. Yet at the same time, when we stand before Him, no flesh shall glory in His presence because we didn't get there by our righteousness or our goodness. It is simply the evidence for us to know that we're going there. We got there by His righteousness and His goodness only. I thank Thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast revealed these things unto babes and hast hid them from the wise and foolish because it seemed good in Thy sight, Holy Father. Back to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. There are eight things in this list here. Eight things. Do you want something to memorize this next week? There's seven days in the week. You know, by next Sunday, which would be the eighth day from today, you could memorize these eight things. Do you know them? Faith and virtue, knowledge and patience, godliness, uh, temperance is in there. Let's look at it. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, Godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. There's eight things. We want, to, we want to know them, and we want to see them build on each other. There are eight things that you are to do to be fruitful. Sometimes when you read in the Bible the word fruit, you wonder, what does that mean? When it says more fruit or much fruit, what does it mean? Well, here are eight things that are specifically defined as fruit for a Christian's life. That if you really know Jesus Christ, these eight things will flow out of your life. They will be in you, and they will abound. They won't barely be in you. You won't have to think, when was the last time I showed a brother some kindness? You know, if it's family and if it's a friend, it doesn't count. But when I showed a brother, because he's a a fellow member of the church, he's a fellow believer in Christ, when was the last time I showed him an act, a service, a costly investment of kindness? Oh, when, 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 when. See, it should abound. You shouldn't have to think. It should be part of your life. Our lives are not our own. Our lives are the Lord's and our lives are each other's. And anyone, that's th- and anyone that's sitting here thinking, yes, I wish everyone was showing that to me, I can promise you that your name is not in the book of life. Because the only thought of those that are in Christ Jesus are like Christ Jesus, and that is they want to give more to others. They don't want to receive more. It never crosses their mind to receive more. They want to give more. Jesus didn't come to receive. Jesus came to give. Jesus didn't come to be ministered unto, but rather to minister. If these things abound, these eight things that are listed... It proves that a man is fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If these things are missing, then you are at best carnally minded Christian, barely squeaking into heaven. And at worst, in the general rule of things, you are reprobate and you'll never see heaven. It's that simple. That's what Jesus said. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Therefore, great diligence ought to be used on these eight things for the real evidence of eternal life, for assurance, for confidence that you're going to heaven, these eight things are what the Bible tells us. This is God's Word. Listen, the only reason we know about hell is because the Bible tells us. The only reason we know about heaven is because the Bible tells us. The only way that we can know that we are going to heaven is what the Bible tells us. And the assurance and the confidence that we have of going to heaven is right here in front of us in these seven verses. You say, but it also says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have two things to say to you about that. First of all, I have just shown you that Jesus Himself said that many, do you understand what the word many means? Mm -hmm. Since you obviously haven't heard what I've said so far. Do you understand what the word many means? Many that call will not get into heaven. They're going to call Jesus Lord. They're going to believe in Lordship salvation but they're not going to have practiced it. Because when it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, there is included in that calling a changed life. Because therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. That little calling that Arminians put all the emphasis on, that is not going to get you into heaven. It is a changed life that is the evidence of being saved. Lord, help us. Add to your faith. The faith here is total confidence and trust in God and His promises, including His Son Jesus Christ so much that you reject all doubts to zealously obey God's commands regardless of difficulty or opposition. That's faith. Abraham had faith. Abraham knew that he was reproductively dead. Sarah was reproductively dead. And because God had said you're going to have a son by Sarah, he believed it and was strong in faith giving glory to God. He didn't question the difficulties in the matter. That melancholy curse that suggests difficulties, that's from the devil in your sinful flesh. Throw it all away and trust God. Are you willing to jump over a gunwale of a ship and walk on water to Jesus Christ? That's what we should be able to do. And you don't think about how water has never held up anyone before unless it was frozen. You just get over the gunwale of the ship and walk to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith that believes God's promises and it results in a changed life. It's willing to only marry in the Lord. It's willing to submit to a pagan boss. It's willing to go to a little congregation of saints in a city like Thessalonica and suffer the loss of all things. It is willing to go to the stake. It's faith that works. Hebrews 11 is just full of the work of faith. Because in each case it says, by faith, Abraham, then what does it say? He went and did something. If it even mentions the word belief, it's that he believes something God said, and then he went and acted upon that belief of what God said. Faith. Godly faith produces fruit and good works for God's glory. Like Abraham, offering his son Isaac on the altar, like Rahab the harlot, lying to the magistrates of her city to preserve the spies of God's church. Faith. But let's add to this faith. We've talked enough about faith. We want to get into this passage before us. Add to your faith virtue. What is virtue? The few uses of it in the Bible, you know, apply to the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 and verse 10 and Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4. Virtuous woman is described there. You know the virtuous woman is so good, so noble, so right, she always chooses the moral high ground, she is so diligent, so faithful, the heart of her husband doth, Safely trust in her because he will have no need of spoil because she will never violate his confidence in her. She is of, here's the definition of virtue. She is of noble strength, noble strength and moral purity to do good and right at all times, like the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 whose husband trusted her in all things. Ruth was called a virtuous woman by Boaz because she had that reputation when she came back to the city of, or village of Bethlehem. This noble character trait takes only the high road in all moral matters. It never compromises. It never cheats. It never tends toward cheating. It doesn't favor family. It doesn't favor self. It doesn't favor finances. It just does what is right because it's virtue. This noble character trait is goodness in a person. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9 lists three other fruits of the Spirit and one of them is goodness. God gave you all the means for virtue in life by His divine power. Look at verse 3. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Mor- moral character of a prince of God. Noble purity of a prince of God. You choose and you do what is right. You think what is right. Your thoughts are good. Your thoughts are holy. Your speech is good. Your speech is holy. Your conduct is good and holy. Lord, help us to be virtuous. Once you believe God and His word, which is faith, the next thing you should do is conform your life to Him, which is the first step of Virtue. Being goodness, noble purity, noble goodness, prince-like, princess-like qualities where the king that's involved is God himself. And to virtue, knowledge. Now we have had knowledge emphasized in this epistle so many times. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 3, it's in verse 5, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 8. But because it's in verse 8, that this knowledge causes us to be fruitful In that knowledge of verse 8, we understand the emphasis of this knowledge that though it includes the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, the emphasis is knowing the will of God. It is learning the will of God. Holding your hand at Second Peter 1, look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 for you to see a cross-reference passage that is useful for this word knowledge. This knowledge is one of the building blocks up to a life that proves election. And it starts with faith, which is what God gives us in the beginning to believe. Then we add to that virtue. Noble character and moral purity. And then we add to that knowledge. And the knowledge that's to be emphasized here is knowing God's will. Because this knowledge leads to not being fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8. So there's a distinction made there. Or it would be redundant, repetitive, and kind of nonsensical. It includes that, knowing God and the Lord Jesus Christ, but it, we want to know more than just about them. We want to know what they want from our lives. And here's a good passage. Philippians 1.9 And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, there's that wonderful word, and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent. Notice what this knowledge does. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. That's what we want. That's the knowledge that we want to add to our virtue, which we've added to our faith It's the knowledge of what does God want in our life so that we can approve things that are excellent and that we can be sincere and without offense. Let's keep going. Verse 6, into knowledge, let's add temperance. This is the fourth thing. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance. Temperance is self-discipline and self-control to rule your body and passions in order to avoid those lusts of the flesh and eyes that lead us to sin against the Lord. Look at Titus chapter 2. It's not far away. Verses 11 and 12. Titus chapter 2. We want the word temperance. What does it mean to be temperate? You know, the temperance movement has basically ruined the word for us. The temperance movement was all those little old ladies from the second half of the 19th century that made war against the beer and wine industry. They called it the temperance movement. What they meant by temperance was total abstinence. You couldn't touch a drop. Teetotalers is a word that came up. But that's not what temperance means. Right. Temperance just means a disciplined, appropriate, moderate use of something. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Denying. Temperance is a, is a word that denies you what you want to do because you only do what you should do. It limits the use of anything. In the Bible, temperance often intends alcohol, food, sex, sleep, and other sins of the body. But temperance also includes moods, speech, impulse buying, haste, thoughts, OCD problems. You know, all those things that get out of control, we are to control every part of our lives so we don't get twisted out of shape. Because godliness is a disciplined approach to life. We're supposed to exercise ourselves into godliness. We want to have structure. We want to have discipline. We want to do what is right. We want to have in place rules for doing what is right. That's temperance. Once you know the will of God for your life, you need the discipline to obey it. Once you believe God, then you need to reach to conforming yourself virtuously to be like God. You want to add knowledge which is knowing the will of God. Then you need temperance in order to be able to do what you learn is the will of God. Because it takes that self-discipline in order to do it. The fifth one is patience. Cheerful, enduring negative events in life to remain calm and committed to the course of action prescribed by God for you. Those that know Christ counted all joy when they fall into diverse temptations. James 1, 2-4. They rejoice when they fall into temptations. Romans chapter five, verses three through five. Since you read Romans five last night, did you see that trials, trials work patience, patience works experience, experience works hope. And you're never ashamed in your hope because God's never going to stand you up because he sheds abroad his love in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto you. That is such a simple little formula. And the wife and I had such pleasure last night thinking through the steps of it and how at our advanced ages of 58 and 55, commencing today and tomorrow, don't anyone say a single syllable about it, commencing today and tomorrow, in our advanced age, we have learned those things actually do work. Uh Trials are bad events that take place. They teach us patience, which is cheerfully enduring negative events, which brings about experience, that you know that God's delivered you a thousand times in the past, yep. the one thousandth and first time is going to be easy. And it results in great hope that God has great things in store for us in the land of the living and in heaven, because God is never going to stand us up, but He always tells us that He loves us. Right. Amen. Oh, that is just good stuff. I mean, can you live that way though? But you know, then something happens to somebody, and they get all they get all whiny. And I'm, I'm guarding my speech right now. You can mark your calendars. There's other anyway. Something bad happens in a person's life and they want to start whining about it. They want to start criticizing about it. amazes me. They want to get angry at God. How in the world can a person ever get angry at God? Ever! Patience doesn't allow that. Mm -hmm. Patience cheerfully endures negative events. Thank you, Lord, for patience. Lord, teach us more patience. Remember the patience of hope that was over there in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4? It's common to both lists. And a patience, godliness. Brethren, you know that we could just go on. I could turn you to 10 verses, 20 verses for each one of these in the, in the list of eight. But we don't need that. We just need to get a little reminder of what each of these eight stand for. And we need to go out of here and do them. And we need to give all diligence to doing them and we can make our calling and election sure. Godliness is religious sobriety with commitment to conform to God's character and will for your life in contrast to worldliness or compromise with sin. And one of the one of the best places to look at godliness is to be like God and to look at Romans chapter Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 48 where it explains what it means to love your enemies. It means to bless them that curse you. When they curse you, you don't curse them back, either in your thought, in your words, in the privacy of your house, in an email, or anywhere else. Right. You bless them. You pray for them that despitefully use you. You do good to them, that you may be like your Father which is in heaven, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for He sends His Son and His reign on the evil and the good. And so we should learn how to do that. And that's part of godliness. That's a little example. That when And every one of us has enemies, and we create some of them as enemies, and sometimes they really are some sort of enemies. But we learn about them to pray for them. Do good to them. Think good about them. Say good about them. As you heard last Lord's Day from girding up the loins of your mind. You know, when you have an enemy, they just torment you day and night, but not when you get down on your knees and you pray for them, and you bless them and you do good things for them. This is godliness. This is an example of it. Godliness is a higher level of conduct than we would ever choose by our nature because we are not godlike. We are manlike. Once you achieve patience under adversity, you can reach even higher for nobler conduct yet. And that is actually doing good. See, it's one thing to be cheerfully, to cheerfully endure something bad happening, but it's a little higher to pray for, to love, to do good, and to bless those that are causing you the adversity. Do you see how it's, because it says add. It starts with faith, and we add to faith virtue, and we add to virtue knowledge, and we add to knowledge temperance, and we added temperance, patience, and then godliness. We're adding to these, and they do build on each other. And they're rather interesting. I mean, each one is a little higher. And should we be surprised, since you have heard a sermon entitled, Love is the Greatest, that when we get to the end of this list of eight, the last two are going to be about love, though the word love isn't going to be used so that you will have to think a little bit more about the two words. Or the two points in the list. And so we have brotherly kindness. To God in us, we add brotherly kindness. In Romans chapter 12, And verse 10, I'll quickly read it to you. It says this, how we should conduct ourselves toward each other because of God's grace. Be kindly, affectioned, one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Each of us should prefer every other one in the assembly over ourselves. Brotherly kindness. Here's how I see the two. Because God put them both in a list, there's got to be some difference because the last one, number eight, charity, is added to brotherly kindness. There's got to be some differences. And when we look through the pages of Scripture, what simple difference can we come up with? That brotherly kindness is doing kind things to your brother. That's not deep, is it? Brotherly kindness is doing kind things to your brethren because they're Christ. For no other reason. This doesn't count family. This doesn't count friends. This counts brethren that are in Christ Jesus. You do kind things toward them. You visit them. You clothe them. You give them gifts. You give them water when they're thirsty. You give them food when they're hungry. When they're sick, you visit them and so forth as it's described in Matthew chapter 25. And you know, there are so many cross references that we could use to show that this is the doctrine of Scripture. Right. Because Matthew 25 says the sheep on His right hand are those that do acts of kindness. And why do they do them? Because they're doing them to one of the least of Jesus Christ's little ones. So brotherly kindness is positive love. The positive aspects of love. Of you reaching out and doing something for someone else. You thinking of who needs who needs something that I could go do for them. It's doing for someone. It's acts of kindness. That's why it's called brotherly kindness. Charity is the other side of love, and that is bearing up with them offending you, which is really the highest measure of love. I mean, to send someone a card and a verse, to text them a Bible verse in the morning and say, I'm praying for you, those are all acts of brotherly kindness and they're good. But when that brother says something mean about you, then says something mean to you, and you bless Him and forgive Him and forget about it and love Him and pray for Him even more than you had prayed before He did those things, right. that is real charity. And when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7, through 7, those 15 phrases, there are a great number of them, are the negative aspect of love. The hardest part of love is suffering a long time with someone who makes you suffer. It's believing all things when you don't want to believe. You want to believe something negative about them because what they just did looks negative. But you believe all things. And if you can't believe it, you hope all things. It thinketh no evil, even though they've done something that looks evil. It is not easily provoked. See, those are all the negative aspects of life. I'm not easily provoked. I grow thick skin, especially when I'm around you. Because I love you. I'm showing you charity. I want you to think through these words with me. The list does not surprise me. That when we get to the end, it's going to be about love. Because love is the real mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest grace and measure in the Bible. The devils are full of faith, but the devils don't have love. Love is Christ. It's the commandment that was given to us from the beginning. Let us learn to love one another in these two ways. Brotherly kindness, the positive aspect of things we do for others, and charity, that we allow them to do things to us, and it does not disturb our equilibrium or our affection for them, but we maintain our unity and overlook them, and we forbear them, and we forgive them, and we do not bear grudges, and we do not hold bitterness, and all those commandments of the Scriptures are wrapped up in this word charity, and we provide for them whenever they need help. And so we have eight things. And it says in verse 8, For if these things be in you. For if these things be in you. God hasn't guaranteed these things in you. God has given you the strength to do these things. And you should be giving all diligence to these eight things. For if these things be in you and abound. Are these eight things in your life? Are they abounding in your life? Do you have to stop and think about when you did one of these things? Or do these eight things guide your whole life? Lord, help us to humble ourselves before this list of eight. For if these things be in you, if these things be in you, It doesn't say if Jesus died for you. It says if these things be in you. These are the eight evidences that we are Christ. You can't say I believe on Jesus and not change your life. That's not believing on Jesus. Jesus demands a changed life. Jesus deserves a changed life. Jesus did not live like this world. This world is the enemy of Jesus Christ. You must be the enemy of this world in order to be a friend of Jesus Christ if these things be in you and abound. You know what the word abound means? You read in Romans chapter 5 last night where sin abounded. That means there was a whole lot of it. Grace did much more abound. That means there was more grace than there was sin. You know what the word means. It means there's a whole lot of it. And so when it says, if these things, these eight things that were just listed be in you and abound, that means there's a whole lot of them. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to know Christ? It means to have a changed life like this verse and the eight things leading up to it describe. That's what it means. You will not be barren. A barren thing is a woman who doesn't bear fruit of the womb. And Being unfruitful is a plant that doesn't bear fruit. In either case, you're not producing what you should be producing. A woman should produce children, in the sense of this verse, against the word barren, and a plant should produce fruit against the word unfruitful. We should be producing. Things should be resulting from us. We should be a tree of life to others. These eight things should be flowing out of us by the power of the Holy Ghost, the divine power given to us already in this chapter and our diligence to bring these things forth for the glory of God and His Son Jesus Christ and the assurance of our hearts. But we, they should abound. Fruit is not enough. Jesus saved you and helps you for much fruit. If you abide in the vine Christ Jesus, there flows to you spiritual power that you can bear fruit and much. We want it to abound. As we think through the list of eight, faith, virtue, knowledge of God's will, temperance or self-discipline, patience, cheerfully enduring negative events. They don't move us. They don't change us. They don't obscure heaven. We continue right on as we were before, if not better. Godliness, conforming our character to be like our fathers in heaven. Kindness, and remember, it's the labor of love. You can't just talk about it. It's got to cost you. It's got to be effort. It's got to be selflessness. And then charity. If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm preaching this epistle to you right now. God has chosen right now for me to preach Second Peter to you. And in Second Peter chapter 1, where we saw, saw and see all the emphasis on the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it results in a changed life, and the results are measured in this context by these eight things. These eight things we want to master. We want to have them flowing out of our lives. We want to have them just bursting forth from our lives. We want God and our, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to see all eight things. You know, some of these things you do at home. Some of these things you do with brethren. Some of these things... Involve the inside, they involve the outside, they involve what's happening to you, they involve what you do with those things around you. They can, they dictate our lives. These eight things. It starts with faith and it ends up with charity. We shouldn't be a bit surprised. It makes me think of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 where the apostle Paul says, circumcision doesn't matter or an uncircumcision doesn't matter. But faith that worketh by love. Now how's that for shrinking the list? That's Galatians five, six. The real evidence of a child of God is faith that worketh by love. That gets us to verse nine, which has a disjunctive starting it. But that person in verse eight has has these eight things just flowing out of his life, just flowing out of her life. She is a great Christian. She is elect and her name is in the book of life. But, there's a different kind of person. We've called them belly worshippers in this church because that's what they're called in Romans 16 and Philippians chapter 3. But, he that lacketh these things, that is the eight. A person that doesn't really have the eight in their life. You know, a little spot here and there doesn't matter because you've probably just misinterpreted their action. Because the person of verse 8 can't be missed. The person of verse 9, you can miss the few things they do because they don't count. Because we want people that abound in fruit. We want a church that abounds in fruit. You want to abound in fruit. I want to abound in fruit. But he that lacketh these things, that is the eight things, is blind. Number one, he cannot see. He cannot see what God has done for him through Jesus Christ, nor can he see what he ought to be doing for Christ. And cannot see afar off. He's nearsighted. This blindness that is described here is declared to be nearsightedness, meaning things that are up close you can see well, like your pastor. I have an 18-inch sweet spot. It may have been developed over the last 31 years. Well, 35 years of staring at a computer monitor and or books held about 18 inches from my eyes. You know, I can, I can see the dust on the letters in a vision machine at 18 inches. But if you flip that little knob at the DMV over to Items at a distance? I can't even see the items. Sherry thinks that means a truck. Nearsightedness. Do You know what it means here? You see all the things that are around you. You see the world. You see the world bombarding you every day and those things entrance you. They seduce you. They entice you. We don't want to be nearsighted. We want to be farsighted. We want to be farsighted so much that we're blind to this world. Paul said he was crucified to this world with the cross of Christ because we want to see way into the distance that we are going to stand before Christ and we want to live in the light of that day. We want to see that our names are written in heaven. We want to see that we have an inheritance there and how much money we pile up in this world doesn't matter. We want to see everything in a heavenly perspective because we walk by faith, not by sight. A nearsighted person is one walking by sight because oh he can see the shiny new car oh he can see the nice shiny new house oh he can see the happy family with all the little babies in the little cribs in the little baby rooms they can see all those things that make them so happy when our sight ought to be on heaven nothing in this world should compare with our sight being on heaven and so then it says and he's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins the reason we do those the reason we do those eight things is to make our calling and election sure to please God and to show God and Jesus Christ a response for Him dying for us. But some people forget that they were purged from their old sins. If you know that Jesus died for you, it should change your life. It should change your life today. It should change your life tomorrow. And that is why we have to come together and think about Jesus dying for us and purging us from our old sins. So that we can go out of here recommitted to doing these eight things and not being blind and not being nearsighted and not forgetting that we have been purged from our old sins. You know, if you're living for the world, if you're living a casual Christian existence, if you're just bouncing around in your Christian faith and you can take it or leave it and you, you yap the yap when you need to yap the yap and you do the talking but you don't really do the walking, You know, if you were ever purged from your old sins, and there's no evidence that you ever were, but if you were, you have forgotten about it. You're blind and you're nearsighted. May God forgive you. The general rule is that you're a reprobate and you have no interest in Christ. Wherefore, though rather, wherefore is drawing an intermediate conclusion. Wherefore? Since we've got those two contrasts of verse 8 and verse 9, verse 8, the fruitful man that does the eight things, verse 9, the man that doesn't do the eight things, wherefore the rather, there's the rather, one of these things is our choice and we don't want to do the other, wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence... He's jumping back and grabbing verse 5 again. Give diligence that you are in verse 8 and not in verse 9. Wherefore the rather brethren, don't be like verse 9, but be like verse 8. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Aren't those some of the sweetest words you would want to read in the Bible? If you do these things, ye shall never fall. That is not the falling of Galatians 5 4, where it says you can fall from grace. That is falling from the knowledge of grace in Galatians 5.4. This is actually falling from grace. This is actually falling out of God's elective plan. This is God, this is falling out of the book of life. This is falling out of heaven. This is falling all the way to hell. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. We don't earn our way into heaven, and I have not taught that today, not even one percent. But when it comes to making your calling and election sure to you, not to God, it is sure because of the surety named Jesus Christ. But it's sure to you if you do these things. These things are not what natural men do. And when they abound, you can be certain natural men don't do them. And so we want these eight things abounding in our lives. We want faith that works and love that labors and hope that bears cheerfully negative events in our lives. We want to be temperate, we want to be patient, we want to have godliness, we want to love our enemies. We want to be like our Father, which is in heaven. And if these things be in you and if you do these things, ye shall never fall. I love this terminology. This isn't my terminology. This is God's? Right. There's nothing you can do, sinner. You want to bet? The text says, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Because we understand by rightly dividing the word of God that it is only describing evidence here. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Meaning the product or the result of the salvation God's already bestowed upon us. And he bestowed that salvation in full sovereign grace, freely through Christ Jesus our Lord. Can do you know how many people have been told in our nation right now that they are on their way to heaven and they cannot fall out of heaven because they invited Jesus into their heart at some point in their life? Do you know how many out of the 320 million? It's an unbelievably large number. And it's ridiculous. That is not taught in the Bible. Even the Apostle Paul, when he got to the end of his life, he did not say... I know that there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me because I invited Jesus into my heart on the road to Damascus. He said, because I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith and I have finished my course. He did those eight things. And he did them and abounded in them more than any other apostle. The grace of God that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain. Remember, the grace of God comes first. We aren't earning our way to heaven. We're showing that we're on our way to heaven. Psalm 15 wasn't showing who gets to earn their way to heaven, but the character traits of those that will be in heaven. The Bible is wonderful when we understand it the way that God has shown it to us. I wish you could all appreciate it, that we maximize the sovereignty and glory of God, and we maximize the responsibility of man. You cannot walk out of hearing a sermon in our church and think that you're just part of God's elect, and that just does it all for you. We we want to walk out of our services and be pressed and convicted and concerned to give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. David, do you remember when we used to be confronted from the pulpit at Bob Jones University? If you don't know, If you don't know that you would go to heaven if you were to walk out of here and be hit by an automobile, raise your hand. And we had to make a decision. Am I going to lie and keep my hand down? Or am I going to raise my hand and have one of these overly zealous soul winners come after me? Oh. Anybody else remember the... (laughs) I hated it. They just did it to us all the time. So you had to make a decision. Am I going to lie and keep my hand down? Because Lord, this is, this is how I used to word it too. Lord, if I'm going to heaven based on that little decision I made about Jesus when I was three years old, Lord, I know the way that I've lived between three and 19 here at Bob Jones. I just don't know that that decision at three is going to cut it. Lord, when I think about your greatness and your glory, and I was learning about the greatness and glory, not because of what Bob Jones taught, but because of what books they had in their rare book room. I was learning about the greatness and glory of God, and this is the way I put it to myself. I said, Lord, I don't believe that what I did at three caused you to bend over and write my name in the book of life. So there I sat. I'm being hammered. If I was to walk out of this place and be hit by a car right now, would I go to heaven or not? And I'm thinking back to a little decision I made when I was three years old, inviting Jesus into my heart, whatever that means, because it's not taught in the Bible. But it's anyway, it's commonly done. Lord, I don't believe my name's in the book of life. Because if my name's in the book of life by what I did, and what I did was what I did at three... No way. No way. Then you hear about God's sovereign grace that He wrote our names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And listen, I'd like to jump over this pulpit. There was a time maybe. It's not now. That is so exciting news. And some of you, when you have shared your testimonies with me, I'm thinking of you, Esther. Not. I'm Esther Crosby in front of Esther Carnell. I'm thinking when you shared that testimony with me in my living room, I'd pay good money. To hear those words out of you again. To hear the sovereignty of God. Do you know that most people hate the sovereignty of God and they hate the doctrine of election because they think that if their eternal destiny was in God's hand, that makes them fearful. Mm -hmm. They want their eternal destiny in their hands. And when I was thinking of my eternal destiny being in my hands as a three-year-old and then how I had lived, well, let's not say from three to 19, let's say from 13 to 19. Lord, have mercy. But then you hear about our names being written in the book of life and you're given passages of Scripture like this. That is just wonderful. It all makes perfectly good sense to my regenerated heart and mind. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Salvation is of the Lord. But the evidence of it is something that I should be putting on every day with the new man and putting off every day of the old man and embracing these eight things and abounding in them. And I beg you to do the same with me. Let's make our calling and election sure so when the day comes and I'm holding your hands, if you'll let me or you'll want me, I won't be there if you don't. And I'm looking in your eyes. I can assure you of eternal life, of the evidence that you have by the meritorious work of one only, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those days are coming. And they're coming for us rapidly. Let's make our calling and election sure. Verse 11, for so, for is a conjunctive tying these two verses together. So is an adverb, meaning in the way that was just described in verse 10, for by doing these things, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at that word entrance. We, we love the word entrance. How do I get into heaven? The word entrance, it tells you right here in this 11th verse, for so, An entrance shall be ministered unto you. Who's going to minister it to you? How do the elect get to heaven? They're carried there by the angels because the angels are our ministers and it's going to be ministered unto you barely, squeakily, scarcely, no, abundantly. How do we get there abundantly? By having abounding fruit in our lives that show for sure that we are God's elect and we've been called by His grace. What a verse. For so. Don't ever read over little words. They're very important in our language. Four is tying those two verses together. There is a period at the end of verse nine. There is not a period at the end of verse 10. These two verses go together. It is giving diligence in these eight things to make your calling and election sure. And if you diligently do these eight things, you'll never fall out of God's grace, but you will be given an entrance abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's nothing about the millennium here. Though Peter is a Jew writing to Jews, there's nothing about the millennium. This is the everlasting, not the thousand-year kingdom. We don't need any of that. This is the truth of God's Word. God has saved us with an everlasting salvation by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I will endeavor in the second service to preach to you in a new way. But it will be the old old story about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will commune with Him. But then let us rise and show that we know the Christ, the risen, reigning, and returning Christ, and do these eight things and do them abundantly and have them abound in our lives. And there will be an entrance ministered unto you by your servants into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter. But this verse says, an entrance shall be ministered. Because it's not the talk. It's those who walk. The eight things of this passage. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter. How do we know that we've been born again? By doing these eight things in this passage. In no wise shall anything enter in that defileth. How do we know that we no longer are defiled in the sight of God? By doing these eight things are the evidence that we are no longer defiled. Blessed are they that do His commandments. They will have a right to enter in. Revelation 22, 14. The Bible ends... With blessed are they that keep His commandments, they will have a right to enter in. The right is not earned. The right is not the instrument. The right is not the means. I mean, By our good works, it is the evidence and the assurance and confidence for our souls. O brethren, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord would be an abundant entrance into heaven. And it's coming for those that do these eight things when the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are going to say, Come, come. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Salvation is all of God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. But our assurance, confidence, and evidence of it and to make it sure to ourselves since we weren't there before the foundation of the world to know that our names were written in the book of life is to do these eight things and have them abound in our lives. This is the word of God given to us today from God Himself by His Holy Spirit, through reading it, giving the sense, it's easy to understand for all of you. Now let us, by the grace and divine power of the risen Christ, bring these things to bear in our lives. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.